Hi, I'm Tony Estrella. If you want to build great communication skills, I invite you to listen to more from my friend Greg Rice and his incredible podcast around the art of communication. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. Hi guys, today you're in for a fascinating conversation with Tony Estrella. Tony is a managing director of Taliosa, and he's also the founder of the company, which focuses on helping startups and large companies find product market fits across Asia Pacific. He's also an expert panelist for Future Proofing Healthcare, where he wrote a white paper outlining what healthcare is going to look like all the way out to 2050. He's an award-winning fiction novelist, where he writes about healthcare-related topics but ties them into very compelling fiction stories. He sits on a number of leadership boards, and he previously led innovation within APAC for MetLife's Healthcare Innovation Center. So just a really interesting and creative guy who's doing a lot of tremendous things. We talk about the importance of storytelling, considering he's an author, right? But how to tell a great story within a business context. We talk about how he's working to build a true healthcare ecosystem within APAC and the importance of developing a common language across many different players. And specifically for startups, we talk about the keys to a successful investor pitch as he's a previous successful entrepreneur himself and how entrepreneurs can most effectively get connected to the healthcare ecosystem and become a part of that world. So Tony's just a fascinating guy doing some really, really cool stuff. And this is a fascinating conversation about how you can blend creativity and business expertise to make a really big impact. Tony, thank you for joining the Art of Communication podcast today. Really excited to have you. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate you making the time for me to join. Uh, happy to join from Singapore in this 12-hour time zone difference that we have. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to coordinate the schedules because of that, but um, definitely understood and I definitely appreciate it. And I think we're going to get into a really interesting conversation because you have such a unique combination of skill sets, I think. Something that really jumped out at me is how you combine creativity and not just like you're innovative and creative, you're certainly that, but you know, you're writing fiction books, you're doing a lot of really creative stuff, artistically creative, and then combining that with technology and strategy and innovation in the business world. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to just kind of start by hearing a little bit about how you ended up going down what seems to me is a really unique path. Yeah, I appreciate the comment. Uh, you know, I think if I go back in time, when I was in college, one of the things that I defined myself as, I, I studied electrical engineering. I thought, myself, I thought of myself as someone analytical. And, you know, if you went around the room and asked people to raise their hands, if they thought that they were creative uh, or had that inside of them, I would not have raised my hand. I would have been one of those people with a puzzled look on their faces going, who, me, creative? And, you know, what I learned over time was uh, that you can actually train yourself to be creative. You can unlock that skill set and that talent inside of yourself. Sometimes it's driven by uh, being able to be exposed to great mentors, um, being given opportunities to foster this left brain, right brain communication inside of yourself. Sometimes it comes from times of crises, you know, it might be the you know, financial crises of 2008 or, you know, what we're going through right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. But one thing that's certain is that, you know, creativity is something that is a process. Uh, and that might not be inherently obvious to people. And uh, just to give you a quick background as to how I, I arrived there, mm -hmm. you know, as I mentioned that, you know, I, I was electrical engineering and studied that. I used to build and race solo electric race cars. Uh, <laughs> and that was something that I did for fun. And I always looked at that as something that was the building of a vehicle and getting people together and you know, raising money for it. And it wasn't until I was into my business career where I started doing consulting that I realized I'd built a startup. I'd put all the elements together to put, uh, bring a group of people on a common mission. And that resonated in my head. And I realized that at heart, I was somebody who enjoyed building things. And when you discover that you enjoy something creating from scratch, that inherently is creativity because you have to mm -hmm. figure out what you'd like to create, then figure out the steps to get there. 
And communication is an incredibly important element of that because you can't convince anyone of your own personal passion unless you can put that into words, pictures, images, essentially a story. And you know, you mentioned that I write fiction and, and I think that over the years I've realized that storytelling is at the core of how I've operated in whatever environment it's been in. You know, it might have been in a in my startup environments where I was um, convincing my teams to be able to focus on a shared mission. Certainly fundraising is about storytelling. Working inside large corporations, I've done that. Working inside of Pfizer, worked at MetLife, MetLife Asia, and running an innovation group there. And that's very much about storytelling, especially the innovation agenda, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. And then what I do now, which is writing both fiction and nonfiction around the future of health and being creating this narrative and prose uh, and a future vision that people can align towards. I think it's really interesting that you write uh, both your fiction and nonfiction are focused around the same kind of core topic, which just, I mean, some folks might write, but about a completely different universe than whatever it is they do from a professional perspective. So it brings a lot of really interesting insights in the way that you tie the two together, I think, in your professional work, right? Like I, I know that you've done some creative thinking about the future, right? Looking out to 2050 in healthcare and what is that going to look like in Asia specifically? So tell me a little bit about that process and how you're leveraging that creative fiction streak to help co- companies understand what they might have to prepare for in the future. Yeah, a great question. And I guess if you think about where uh, healthcare is right now, we're at an incredibly momentous inflection point uh, in the industry. And I've work, been working in healthcare since uh, you know, 2001, 2002 in a variety of different roles. I mentioned you know, I was an entrepreneur and worked inside large MNCs. I've also helped uh, venture investors. And the one commonality is that everyone will look at what's been happening in the last six months and will comment on how much technology adoption has increased by all stakeholders in the healthcare whether it's governments, whether it's insurers, whether it's medical device manufacturers or pharma manufacturers, individuals. You know, the, word, the word that leaps to mind um, as one of the first uh, comments is telemedicine. And, but there's many, many other forms of technology. And what's happening today is, is the start of a real change in the healthcare industry. And one thing that resonated with me as a kid uh, was, uh, especially in, in, the, in the world of storytelling, was watching Star Trek, watching Star Wars. And you, know, you watch these movies and you could imagine what the future of space travel could look like based on these narratives and these stories that were told by incredibly talented filmmakers um, and their, you know, their teams that they used and partnered with to create these stories. And I think that where I found my calling and where I found a way to bridge my different experiences as a business builder, as a strategist, and as an author has been to focus on this future of health because uh, not just me, I hope others are doing more of this as well. We need narratives which help to paint the picture of what does it mean when AI is fully dispersed across all of healthcare? How does that change the entire care continuum for for any type of disease, anywhere from education to prevention to early diagnosis to interventions when you get sick? And how does that all tie together? I had an opportunity to partner with a group called Future Proofing Healthcare, which is on a mission to help make the, the decisions for health systems be data-centric and data-driven. And they want to be one of the organizations that brings together various forms of data. But you know, what they asked me to do was paint the picture for what APAC Asia-Pacific will look like in 2050. And that's a broad question, right? So sure. I, I, went to, yeah, I went to business school. And one of my favorite essays was that I had to write was, uh, was tell us about yourself. That was the question, right? And this is kind of that same type of question. You have to figure mm-hmm. out what do you want to communicate and then, then be able to make people follow your journey in the logical way to get there. And for me, what part of that journey was to explain the end outcome and then why people would care. And so in this narrative that I wrote, uh, longevity and a miracle cure for longevity where our lifespans don't end at 70 years old, but rather are now 150 years old, becomes this massive change trigger where everybody starts thinking about what is the objective of healthcare now? When we literally double our lifespans, what should healthcare systems be doing to enable people to have a high quality of life? 
regardless of what your starting point is, your income level, your position, your role, everyone should benefit from that. And it's an optimistic view. I admit that. But sometimes we need optimism. And that's, I think, what Star Trek did a really good job of creating a, a view of where we could be. And as part of this, I not only described what the trigger was, what the end looks like in 2050, where we currently are, but I also wrote a narrative around four individuals to help bring this to light so we could look at this through the lens of someone who feels real as opposed to just describing. And then one of the things you do in fiction is there's a, there's a phrase you should always keep in mind is show, don't tell. And it's so much easier when you write a story about somebody that you show what they do and why as opposed to telling somebody something. Love that, that concept, show, don't tell. So, and I mean, that is business creative writing at the next level, I think. I don't think many folks have looked that far out and taken kind of a, I don't want to say a fictional approach, because it's obviously based in, in truth and where we're at today, thinking about where we might go in the future. But so many of us are so focused on the next quarter, let alone, you know, 30, 40, 50 years out. And I think yeah. we need to do, take a better balance of the next quarter is important, but so is 30, 40, 50 years out. And we, we have to balance those two things. So thinking about storytelling, what are the keys to telling good stories from a business perspective? You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm trying to get investment or if I'm trying to sell my idea within my organization or I'm trying to build a, a partnership with somebody, what are the keys to telling good stories in that context? First is know who your audience is. You, you need to understand how you need to tailor a message based on that audience. And so... I think one of the main flaws I've seen in coaching entrepreneurs as an example is that they'll give the same pitch to investors over and over again. And it's, it's great that you know what you, your business does, but you have to understand what are the particular areas of emphasis and focus for, for each investor. They're not all the same. They might all carry that same uh, name on their business card, but they all have different objectives for what they want to accomplish with their fund. Same thing holds true inside of a large corporation, uh, inside of a working team. You need to know who your audience is. So you start there. And then in, I would say that if that's 1A, 1B is you need to know your core messages. You need to understand what it is that you're trying to communicate, uh, what's behind those messages. And those then become the foundation for then being able to be able to communicate and hopefully influence the objective you want to reach. And uh, I would say that's the second one, that 1A, 1B, then number two is know what your objective is. Don't walk into a large presentation with 300 people and and just start talking with no objective in mind because you might be a great orator and people might love listening to you, but when you're done and people walk away, they'll be like, hmm, that was really entertaining, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to take away from that. And every conversation in a business context matters. You're building relationships, you're expanding on knowledge of, uh, and sharing knowledge of what you do. And it might not lead to an immediate action, but you should have a call to action. And that call to action should be learn more, that's fine. Our call to action may be a closing transaction any, and anywhere in between, but you should have an objective in mind. So I look at those as, the foundation for effective communication. And you you certainly can build off of those to be able to go into a variety of directions and become a better influencer, become a better presenter, be able to have better visuals to accompany you. But those are the three things that I keep in mind anytime I'm having any sort of discussion. And it applies to a one-to-one discussion and it applies to one-to-many, whether it's two, three, 10, 300, 1,000, whatever it might be. I love the idea that every business communication is important. Right. Um, I think that's important for us to remember um, as we're out in the world having conversations, remembering that every touch point could matter and you never know where that conversation might take you in the future. Yeah. Now, as you think about kind of the storytelling piece, you mentioned before show don't tell. I'm curious of how you weight that into, say, an investor pitch or, uh, you know, some sort of presentation that you're doing. Do you focus a lot on telling stories in that world? You do. So, one of the better uh, venture capital funds with the track record that backs up that claim is Sequoia. Mm-hmm. And when one of my former colleagues started his own venture fund a few years ago, uh, I remember when he sent he copied me in a message that he sent to a bunch of people that he was uh, helping to build awareness for in regards to what his fund stood for. 
And um, this fund's name is called Leo Capital, and uh, they're primarily focused in India. And the presentation he forwarded was Sequoia's template of what a good presentation looks like. And the first slide in that deck is, tell us what problem you are trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And that's a story. I can, I, can, mm-hmm. I, can, I can quantify it. I can give you examples of what I'm trying to solve. But ultimately, you are telling a story to help bring someone from a leaning back position to a lean forward position to say, ah, I get why you're tackling this problem. It meets all of my criteria as a venture capitalist to say it's a big problem, it's challenging, it's difficult. Technology is a core way of reinventing the way that it's done. You're replacing something that isn't working well. And all of that can be told with one story. And that's the first slide. And then from there, you go into a variety of different directions and you, you find that you then can tell why your solution is unique. You can talk about why your team has the, has the best credibility to, to, to help solve this problem talk about accomplishments, metrics, but you start first with that story. Yeah. Any other keys for just investor pitches and and developing them beyond, you know, telling a powerful story and everything that you've already shared? Yeah. Especially in in today's world where like, like 2008, we're in a world where financial capital is more conservative as a result of the, the broader macro environment around us. Be really specific about your metrics um, mm. have metrics if you don't have them and <laughs> identify them and make sure you, you uh, are measuring things and be really clear as to what they are and what they mean. And uh, that, that is essential because you know, I remember when I uh, was learning about what it meant to be a good investor, the analogy that uh, someone gave to me, which still resonates, is that an investor is looking at an opportunity like a hub and spoke. You know, you at the center, you have this, this hub and then you have multiple spokes which ultimately form a wheel. When times are really good and you look back at, say, the late 1990s where you know, anything was getting invested into, you might have needed two, two spokes, right? a team and an idea. When times are really challenging, like what we're in right now, you might need 10 spokes before someone will give you money. Mm. And you, know, you have to think about the environment, but it, 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 regardless of which type of environment you're in, if you're a successful and very good business leader, you always worry about how you're measuring success. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's missed a lot of times. And in, in, in my experience working with entrepreneurs, especially really early stage or maybe first time entrepreneurs, they maybe think a lot about the problem, but not enough about all the other spokes and specifically not enough about metrics. Um, yeah. And it's really hard at the front end of something really innovative to understand, uh, you know, put together something like financial projections or uh, understand what metrics you really want to measure yourself by that are going to make a big impact. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think there's definitely a lot of exploration that has to happen there and probably a lot of talking to folks like yourself who know the particular industry that they're interested in getting into and can help them think about that. Yeah, and I think that the industry you're in will certainly have its own metrics, whether if you're looking at financial services versus healthcare, you know, they have different and objectives, but there is commonality. If you're a technology-driven organization, engagement is an important one. Mm-hmm. How, you're, how you're acquiring your customers, how effectively you're acquiring them. One, one lesson I learned from my own startups and in also um, helping to others figure out their business is the importance of managing to a gross margin. So what that means for people who don't understand that from a financial perspective is you, you have your product and then you have all the costs that go into your product. If you can find stability in those costs, and that excludes the costs of sales and marketing, then you actually understand your, your unit economics. And mm-hmm. once you understand that, then you can figure out how, it, how you scale. And the quizzical look that entrepreneurs may get when talking to uh, investors around unit economics comes from not understanding some of the, the basic fundamentals from a finance perspective of what your business needs to look like as you scale and grow beyond the cool factor of being first in your market and building something unique that no one else has thought of before. Yeah. And, and what I've seen is, uh, you know, investors and, and folks assessing investments, they'll look at financial projections of, Hey, I'm going to sell 5 million in year two. And they'll throw that out the window because so many things have to happen. Nobody really knows what's got to happen there, but what they'll nail down on is those core fundamental margin numbers that you're talking about. If you can make a strong enough margin based on these costs, which we feel really good about, 
and we're confident that the team can execute against the marketing plan, we think there's a lot of upside here. Maybe it's 5 million in two years, maybe it's 2 million, maybe it's 10, right? But we know we can make money on this if it's successful. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that's been interesting to say is I mentioned to you that I, uh, I helped to run an innovation group here in Asia for MetLife. Mm -hmm. And this same thought process is being widely sought after within the corporate world. They're trying to find ways to uh, infuse you know, lean, agile innovation into an organization. And um, you know, I think that it is a different mindset that a large corporate need to take. It's possible to, to, to integrate that in, but it does take all, a level of uh, reshaping the way that people prioritize and audit and ultimately delegate the resources and, and, uh, and, uh, that are in, within an organization towards new initiatives. And, and that's a good shift point, I think, in the conversation, because I'd love to talk a little bit about innovation and how to do it well, right? So how, especially in the corporate world where they're maybe not used to it, how can they bring together more diverse perspectives, open up the conversation to a more diverse point of view to help find more innovation opportunities? So I, I break it down into two areas. And so the part of the way I spend my time beyond writing is, I help companies figure out what their product market fit is in Asia, uh, in Asia Pacific. And what that means is first you have to have an approach internal to your organization about how you encourage new ways of thinking and especially how you encourage being focused on problem solving as opposed to putting solutions and then hoping that it solves a problem. Mm. And, and you know, the innovation agenda, there's many different frameworks that you can follow. And the, but the, ultimately, the commonality of almost every innovation agenda is figure out what problem you want to solve first. You want to then explore the potential outcomes that you, can, that you can achieve and pick the desired outcome you want to achieve. And you want to be iterative. Some companies will, will, will capture this as saying, we want to fail fast. Others will say, we want to fail, period, because they don't, have never allowed it before. And either way, you want to use data to quantify success. You want to be able to, to, do, to look at information to help feed the wheel. Because this isn't the linear process. This is actually something that's iterative. And you may not have identified every element of the problem you want to solve the first time around. And you use data to help you continue to refine that problem. And once an organization takes that approach and is now problem-led and uses solutions and ultimately technology to solve that, they're really ready for innovation because when they've deployed that in a way that people are incentivized to think this way, both from you know, their compensation, but also just team structure and uh, the way they're given time to think critically and, and improve themselves, then you're really implementing a way that where creativity can be learned because you're now incented to go and explore and think differently. And now you can put a framework in. And what a framework looks like and I've developed one of these for my company, Taliosa, is you want to be able to start figuring out what common problem are you solving with other organizations that are external to you? Because it's rare that one organization can solve a problem by itself. There's a mm. few examples, mm. right? Like Google solved search pretty well by itself. But you know, there's, for the most part, you need an ecosystem to solve a complex problem. And so in order to get an ecosystem to work together, you have to have common problem statements that you align on and using a vocabulary that both organizations can understand. So you, you, you take that approach, eventually you figure out an, a broad solution and an MVP where you both know what you're contributing to this joint solution, which is solving a, a clear problem. You do pilots, you, you get insights, and then eventually figure out what to scale. And that's without how uh, those come together, which is approach versus framework. I think that, that, that that's a really interesting approach. I really like to focus on the problem versus the solution. Again, taking it back to kind of the early startup phase, I think folks come with an idea for a solution that doesn't work because kind of your first solution never works in anything that you ever do, right? You always have to fail and learn and grow and fail and learn and grow. And then eventually you find the solution. And they're just blown out of the water because the first solution didn't work. But if you're focused on the problem, willing to fail, willing to be flexible and try other things, that's when you're going to find the real golden egg, if you will. Yeah. Yep. It's interesting. Now, I know you talked about kind of the value of the ecosystem, 
Right. Tell me a little bit more about the ecosystem and all the different players that you're trying to put into that healthcare ecosystem in Asia and how you're bringing them together. Sure. So this applies for, I'll start first with a global comment around ecosystem and then I'll make it uh, specific to Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in, uh, if you look at the U S healthcare system, you know, patient payer provider, uh, is a common terminology within the healthcare world of describing the three big stakeholders. It doesn't end there. You've got things like pharmacy, um, you know, with technology, you've got different types of models now for how you connect all of these organizations together. And when you expand that out globally, you'll find that governments and private companies provide a level of security um, through insurance. And the role of insurance varies greatly by whether you're talking about Asia Pacific versus Europe versus the U.S., right? So Europe tends to be a single payer system, uh, Western Europe especially. The U.S. we know has had its challenges with trying to figure out the right way to make sure everybody has a a safety net of insurance. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's been interesting in Asia has been that in this ecosystem, the role of insurers is actually very different than um, in most other parts of the world. You have not health insurance companies like you'd see in the U.S., so like a Cigna or Aetna driving the agenda. You actually have life insurance companies who have the broadest products available to, to individuals for health. And it's through a product called critical illness. And essentially, it looks like a life insurance policy, except that the trigger for someone to receive financial support isn't someone passing away. It's actually having some form of a a debilitating health event. So if you're a cancer patient, when you get diagnosed with cancer, that's when you get a payout from your life insurance policy, but for health. And so... So I'd say that uh, a comment from a global perspective is that while the stakeholder groups may look the same, pharma, med device, employers, insurance, their roles in, in different areas of the world and geographies start to become very different. And so that's, I, I think it's more complicated in Asia because the roles are much, much broader and the challenge of having a mobile first environment in Asia Pacific uh, is both a blessing and a challenge. You can bypass the way that, that health is delivered, as we see in the U.S. or in Western Europe, and create new models. So take, for example, pharmacies. Uh, there's a company out here called M-Clinica, uh, where the CEO and his team have built out virtual pharmacy connection that reaches 150 million people. And it's across you know, Indonesia and the Philippines. And they've just taken a different approach because it's all mobile. Mm-hmm. and and so you know, the, the importance of an ecosystem matters because you have to know how to stitch all this together, but it does come down to common that, solving that common problem. Do you find within the ecosystem butting of heads to get a bigger share of the pie? Because I feel like we definitely have some of that problem going on in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I think that people are within their organizations are trying to figure out how they maximize the benefit of their organization. But one factor that I think that makes things uh, unique in Asia Pacific is the number of people is so much greater. 4.4 billion people across 44 countries, right? So it's just, if you took a, a one area of focus, you could find 10x to 100x number of people where it might be relevant to try to solve that problem for them here. And so you do get you know people who are uh, butting heads, but there is a lot of, of growth in this region because it's, it's earlier in its life cycle from a healthcare system and development perspective. Certainly. So I, you also mentioned a common language, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious of how common the language is when you look across the universe of the ecosystem. Uh, you know, when you talk about payers or whatever they might be called there in Asia and providers and patients, and then you bring startups into the mix and technology, is everybody speaking common language or is that something that we're still trying to build? And how important is it that we all have a common language? It is extremely important as the answer. And I'd say it's <laughs> still a work in progress. You know, you have, I think that that is the well-intentioned objective of a innovation group is to help to be a bridge to the broader organization to work with external party parties. You know, the most effective uh, innovation groups I'll, I'll, point to Samsung as one example. View partnerships, view 
uh, incubation, uh, they view investments in M&A as tools to achieve an objective. They don't view that having those tools in and of themselves is a success. So, you know, just because you have a fund doesn't make you an innovative organization. Mm-hmm. There's a mindset shift that has to, have to, has to happen within the organization to then use that tool of, of, uh, of investment to then achieve a goal. And what's, what's happened in some of the best innovation-oriented groups um, and organizations is they have not only stayed at the fringe, but they've been able to become essential to one or more core groups of a business to help drive change. And part of that comes from creating new vocabularies for how people communicate with external organizations. But first, have you ever thought about doing your own podcast? I'll tell you, if you're a business owner, you absolutely should be. There's no better way to get your name out there, to grow your network, and really develop a relationship with your customers. I can tell you in the short time that I've been doing this podcast, I've already had conversations with top global influencers, Fortune 500 CEOs, and a host of other really cool people that I otherwise would not have had the opportunity to connect with. But you might be thinking, hey, it might be really hard to do a podcast. I don't know where to start, or I just don't have time. But I'll tell you, if you work with my friends at World Class Media, they make it super easy. That's who I worked with. With their done-for-you podcast, literally, all I have to do is just record the episode and they do everything else from end-to-end, including all editing and production, development of my intro and outro and music, my artwork and website, development of my show notes, and submission of my show to all the major podcasting mediums. They even created my social media cards. And they offer me coaching along the way as well to help me to become a world-class podcaster right out of the gate. So if you've ever considered starting a podcast, you owe it to yourself to talk to world-class media because that's how it's a lot easier than you think. So just go to gregjrice.com backslash done for you to learn more about the done for you podcast service and to set up a free consultation. The importance of vocabulary and language to innovation is, is really interesting and something I think a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but it is, it's a fascinating topic. Now, just one other question here. If I'm a startup and I'm thinking about trying to, and I'm kind of outside the lines of this universe, this network, how do I start to build my network, in your opinion, to start to become part of this universe? Like, What is the best way in, if you will? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, one of my uh, good friends in the industry used to work at, uh, at Bayer, uh, the pharma company. And when, one of the things they did, which also my old group, uh, Lumen Lab, did at MetLife, was they created a, a role for open innovation. And essentially what that meant was they looked internally first inside of their respective organizations and identified a list of big problems, right? Just things that weren't getting solved fast enough uh, or the company didn't have the internal top talent and knowledge or in corporate speak uh, capability to solve the problem. So what they did was they created a way to expose these problems to external parties, especially startups, and said, please help us. And in return for helping us, we will give you some commercial contract, we'll give you visibility, we'll give you marketing, which helps those startups be able to uh, have two things. One is a partner inside of the organization to basically be a translator. And then second, attraction point to be able to show to their other potential customers and most importantly, investors of your startup that you're really doing something that is meaningful and some, some, other, some customer really cares about it. And so for a startup, what I'd, I'd give advice to startups all the time about this is find, a, find someone who will be your evangelist within the organization. It doesn't have to be an innovation group. And in some cases, it's actually been uh, hard to work with an innovation team because they may not have the authority to directly drive scale. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you don't, they don't assume it's just one person, but find, find one or more people within an organization that can be your champion, educate them constantly and help them understand why you continue to be relevant in helping them shine within their organization because you focus on execution and delivery, then everybody does well. The, the group that is the ultimately the customer for the startup is seeing value. The evangelist is seeing that the investment that they've made in a partnership or an external relationship is paying off. Uh, and then the startup then sees that they're gaining traction and can take those learnings to, to enhance and involve their product roadmap. 
And all along the way, you're building that credibility of having that strong partner of yeah. who, whatever company is that you're dealing with. Because being a startup nobody knows is a very challenging place to be. Yes, yes. Yeah, I remember hearing this from a, a fellow entrepreneur when he had left to become an entrepreneur. He's like, when I used to work at XYZ Tech Company, everyone returned my phone calls, right? <laughs> just, everybody knows who Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, you know, you'll never turn your calls. But when you're calling from a company where they've never heard the name before, you know, just expect to be rejected. You know, just it's, no, yeah. it's normal. Yeah. Rejection and hearing no is a big part of being a successful entrepreneur, obviously, and learning to live with that, um, which can be yeah. difficult for some people at times, um, for most people, yeah. I'd say at times. Yeah. So that was great. So just a couple more questions I'd like to ask everybody who I have on the show. The first one is around the power of conversations. Um, and I always like to ask everybody on the show, if there's one conversation you can point to in your life that you can tell us about that had a meaningful impact on the direction that you ended up taking. Yeah, I thought about this question uh, a lot because I wanted to see if it was one particular individual that I could point to. And, you know, I think it, it actually um, is more of a theme that mm. came together for me. And when I started writing fiction, my, my fiction novel, uh, for my debut novel is called Comatose, and it's a fiction novel about lucid dreaming. Yeah, I had the confidence to write the book because I had this story that I had literally dreamt and I wanted to, to put it down and capture it on paper. I dreamt at the end, characters, plot, key scenes. And there was one woman who I met when I was living in London who had talked about, you, you should share this with people. And the best way to share your stories is put it into a writing competition. And, and I thought that that was a huge leap of faith to take something which was a personal passion project and then go and put it out there into some writing competition, which is a William Faulkner writing competition, and see what happens. And in hindsight, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me not only that it not only did it enhance my internal confidence, but it then gave me that push to say I should share this story with others. And the reason I said it as a theme is that when I think about the impact of that conversation, it reminds me of the three or four other times in my life where I knew something felt right to me as a next step. And I somehow at the right time had a best friend in one case, a mentor in my first company in another case, a, a coworker when I was thinking about starting my first startup. They all had very similar comments to me, which was to take that leap of faith. And mm -hmm. so I'd say that you know, the best advice I can give to people is that you find inspiration in different places. And, you know, the, the dedication for my book actually all ties that together for me, which is they dedicated the book not to one individual, but for anyone who knowingly moves into uncomfortable new spaces, because you are making that leap of faith. And, you know, you may not succeed, but you learn so much about yourself by going through the effort of putting yourself out there. You'd be amazed how often when I ask that question, I hear some version of that, right? That, hey, I, I, I thought I might have something, but I really wasn't terribly confident. I didn't think I was that good. You know, I thought I was okay. And then somebody encouraged me. So I, I took that leap. I tried and now I'm terribly successful at whatever that thing is, you know? Um, and it always makes me think about what if that person would have never given that encouragement? And then it makes me reflect on, well, where am I not giving encouragement where I could be? And what impact is that having? You know, it, it's just a fascinating yeah. road for me to go down a, uh, a thought experiment. Anyway, yeah. um, so thank you for sharing that. I definitely appreciate it. It's powerful. Second question, you think about your journey so far, you've done so many cool creative things. If there's one communication skill you could have had in more abundance that would have made it easier for you, what would that have been? Believe it or not, I, had, I struggled to be a good public speaker. Uh, I wouldn't and, guess that. Yeah. I mean, we're doing a podcast together, right? So uh, you know, I think <laughs> yeah. you have to get to a certain level of confidence in your ability to speak before you say, okay, sure, let's go. I you know, have a conversation about my life and what I think and how I feel. And uh, you know, it was a conscious effort to work on that, to, that skill set. started in high school where I actually forced myself to take a public speaking class and did horribly at first. But you know, it was one of those where I just knew that, you know, I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't put in a situation for whatever reason 
to build that skill set naturally. So I had to go and force myself to to build it. And you know, you you, you need to have the ability to communicate. And then I, and I use that for myself because I think being able to speak in in groups of one or many, I think, has been very helpful for me over the years. And being able to share my thoughts and and uh, influence an outcome that I thought was important. But not everybody is to be a public orator. Mm-hmm. You can do that through writing. You can do that visually. You know, uh, a graphic graphic artists are incredible at doing this if you if you if you're put in the right position. And I think that the the, the commonality across all of that is find the mode that works for you to communicate well, and put the effort in as uncomfortable as it might be to get to a place where you can share your thoughts with others um, and use it as a collaboration mechanism. And there's reasons why, you know, some people are better at visual versus uh, oral versus uh, auditory. Just find what's comfortable for you and work on that skill set. Yeah, I love that. And the other thing I would say there is don't let, just because it's uncomfortable, don't let it hold you back from an opportunity that you otherwise would feel really good about. I remember I, um, from a public speaking perspective, I used to hate it as well. I forced myself to take public speaking classes in college, wasn't great at them. And I started my career, didn't love speaking, um, and ended up taking a job where I knew I would have to consistently give two-hour presentations on a regular basis to business owners on a variety of different topics. And I was terrified of doing it. I almost didn't take it. But eventually I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to be scared out of this. I'm going to do it. I'll figure it out. And through that process, I became a much better speaker. And I actually yeah. learned that two-hour presentations in a way are easier than five-minute presentations because you're not worried about being perfect. You can just get up there and kind of talk and get into your flow. Um, yeah. But you got to at least take the chance and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, um, and so, one of the things okay. that I, yeah, and, yeah, yeah not, not to interrupt, but I just, you made me think of something else, which is that um, one of the things that I love about the experiences I've had in, in, uh, over the course of my life, especially where I'm, where I'm at right now, is when you add different cultures into the mix mm-hmm. and when you add in having to adapt the way that you communicate because of, uh, you know, people come from different places. Maybe their, your, your knowledge of English is better than their knowledge of English, but there you just have to find a way to bridge that and communicate something. So you achieve something effectively. That's, that, that's another layer that becomes in and it's another great challenge to try to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. And you've worked across so many countries around the world and with so many different types of people and so many different, you know, nationalities and cultures, I assume you've had a crash course in that. So I'm sure that, that you're a pro at understanding how to communicate differently in different cultural contexts. Yeah, I, I keep working at it. <laughs> it's something a lot of us in the, in the U.S., I think, probably take for granted sometimes because, you know, we're not communicating on such a global level. But last question for you. Who's the best communicator that you know, either know of or know in person? And why do you say that about them? Yeah, uh, I think... It comes down to me to something you've actually shared, which I've very been very impressed with. Your love of your family has, mm-hmm. has stood out to me in terms of just learning a bit more about you. And I feel the same way. And uh, my, my wife jokes that I'm a budding child psychologist at heart because I really <laughs> enjoy learning and, and sharing uh, life with my five-year-old daughter. And I am so impressed with kids. Mm-hmm. when they learn how to express their feelings and emotions and find a way to take all those big things that are happening inside of them, communicate it clearly and achieve a result, which helps to fix whatever is going on for them. Right. It might be as, li- as small as like not being able to play well with another kid. It might be dealing with some bigger thing of just not feeling good after a t- difficult conversation or whatever it might be. I think this, the seeing how that little being becomes a better communicator to me is an amazing journey. And it's something that I, I, it influences me in saying, okay, well, I could do better in communicating. If this little person doesn't even have all those skills yet and they're just learning, I, I can do better. So might not be the answer you're expecting, but I, I just feel like it's definitely a big influence on me. I love it. I love it. It's the first time I've, I've heard that. And I love that answer. Currently have a three, I have five kids, but a three-year-old currently, as well as four teenagers. But I've always been fascinated at watching them develop their own personalities as they kind of grow up. You know, my three-year-old is very strong-willed, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, she, she likes to get her way. And so she finds a way to communicate it one way or another. 
and then uh, on a flip side, my um, 14-year-old son to see his personality change as he kind of goes through those middle school years, also fascinating for me. Just try to keep them, you know, on, on, the, on the good path because <laughs> those are rocky times. But all my kids are awesome and he's awesome. And, and, and so I think that that's a tremendous answer. So final, final question. Where can folks find you? Where can they learn more about what you're doing? Where can they check out your books? Yeah, so I have my personal website, which is uh, www.toniestrella.com. Estrella is like the star in, star in Spanish. And then my business uh, website is taliosa.com, T-A-L-I-O-S-S-A.com. Got it. And then the book Comatose and yes. a second book, right? I am working on uh, the working second on the book, second which book. is a, yeah, it's a, sequel, a sequel to Comatose. Um, it's actually part of a trilogy. And the fun thing is I, I did a, quite a few BBC interviews because I launched the book in the UK. Mm. And uh, a lot of the conversation was around lucid dreaming. And I mentioned this a bit earlier is that literally while I sleep, I get creative ideas that feed into these books. So when I, when I say that I've, I know what the trilogy is, it's because I've dreamt the end of the second book and the third book. And so I know where everything is going and I've dreamt characters, plot, key scenes. So it's just, it's a matter of time and writing it and doing research into various areas around the science of the mind, like consciousness is one of the areas I'm focused on right now uh, to help bring the other elements of healthcare into these stories as well. Very cool. And the, just real quick, the process of writing, I've heard some authors speak about, you know, they create a character, but then the character almost, you know, lives their lives as they're writing it, right? The character directs the story. They're not they don't have the whole outline for the character, right? The character tells them where to go and they have a broader plot. They know where they want to end up, but the character kind of runs where they want to, to get there. So when you're writing, is that how you kind of think about it or do you have a very kind of structured approach to how they're getting there? So because I know where the end is of the stories, I know where the chess pieces need to be positioned Mm -hmm. um, at different parts of the story from beginning to end and in the middle. I, I agree with that comment in that once you start writing dialogue, you need to have a lot of backstory into these characters to figure out their specific voice and motivations. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what you end up writing as to what they say and how they be- end up at this place surprises you because it just flows out. It definitely flows out for me. And I found it to be fun that I've created side characters that I didn't imagine when I started but they needed to be there because that's how it created the color and the richness to why some one of you know one or one of these characters would have made a journey uh, a decision in their journey to you know take a left turn and then a right turn and then you know, go drop down into a new part of a, a story and it's all because of interactions that they're having and those those aren't necessarily planned because you need to make it be organic in the way that mm-hmm. you tell that story. Yeah. Two, two quick related questions. Do you find it hard to write dialogue? One, or at least when you first started. And two, do you find writing dialogue for a variety of characters helps you communicate better in the real world as you're talking to people? So the uh, answer to the first question around, uh, do, I, do I find it hard? I did. And so one, uh, a tip for people who want to learn how to write dialogue is watch your favorite movies or TV shows and write that dialogue down. And write it as if it was a script. And you'll find that it teaches you things about how do you describe someone taking a deep breath? How do you describe the, the sound that someone is making when they're surprised? How do you, you know, mm. create that, that emotion in words that you're seeing on a screen? And I did that for about six months. And that, that gave me a foundation to work from to then be able to write my own dialogue. Because I did, at first, it wasn't this, this uh, natural skill that just flew, flew out my, uh, my fingers into a keyboard and onto a screen. I had to work at it. But once I mm-hmm. found my voice for being able to do that, it helped a lot. And one, uh, another tip on dialogue that really has helped me a lot is music. Every one of my characters has their own Spotify playlist. <laughs> and that is how I create I a unique voice. So, yeah, so that's, that's been a lot of fun. Um, and then, that. the, the, yeah, that's, uh, I think those are two tips for whether, whatever it is that you're writing, it, it helps to, to be inspired and then stimulate yourself to think differently because it's not you speaking every time. Mm-hmm. And then has that helped you communicate more effectively in the real world? 
writing is the real world. It's just my uh, world. Good point. <laughs> so, good point. Uh, the conversation. So say, that. <laughs> yeah. So yes, uh, because um, as as my wife has has uh, observed, my words have be- my word choice has become more specific, and. One of the talks that I regularly give around creativity and dreaming, ultimately, eventually, I go to uh, how do you break lazy habits? Um, Because if you're a creative person, you want to be able to express yourself. And public speaking is a good example where we've all, in some way, shape, or form, been coached to lose ums, pauses, and try to become more fluid in the way we speak. We actually write that way, too. Uh, We all have lazy words. And if you were to look at a long piece of writing that you've done. It could be a long email. You can be critical about picking out words that you repeatedly use. So that pencil sitting on that desk needs to go to that person over there. I use the word that three times. Mm -hmm. Not necessary. So you get smarter and better and more effective at picking out uh, how to be more specific with your language verbally and in writing. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I was thinking about it from the angle of kind of getting into other people's heads a little bit right so to create a character and have dialogue you almost have to get in their mindset and then i think you if you if you know you have a meeting with somebody coming up you can kind of do the same and think about well where's their mindset at and how might that direct the conversation how can i speak to them in a way that they'll better understand yeah so i agree yes i agree with that comment as well that you learn to think outside of your own mind when you have to do creative writing because you want to look at the world through a lens that isn't familiar to you and so it, it can start with gender, right? Having to write female characters if you're male or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, it can start with whatever difference you might pick, whether you're for, if, you're, if you're an American writing and you want to write uh, what a German would, would think about, you want to understand what that difference in culture is and how they might speak and react. And that then carries over to understanding different cultural decisions and cultural modes of communication that might not have been obvious to you in the first place. Great, great. Love that. I know we've already kind of gone over a lot of time, but it was just a great conversation. So I really appreciate it. I thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation and uh, best of luck with the family and uh, and all the challenging times that we're having right now. Uh, Same to you, sir. Same to you. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the Communication Nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.